Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Corinthians, where we're uh, back into the home stretch of this series. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're up to. While you're doing that, let's ask God's help. Well, thank you for blessing us. There is an incredible blessing for your people just to be together, to be reminded as each other speak and sing and pray about your goodness, about the hope of the gospel that we have. And so, Lord, thank you already for working amongst your people to encourage us. And now as we just spend uh, spend a bit of time just focusing on what you have said, Holy Spirit, will you give us ears to hear and a heart to receive and a boldness to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm 46 years old now. Um, I know. Um, those of you who know me well enough know that it's probably fairly fortunate to have reached 46, probably. Um, and I'm grateful to have lived a pretty full and healthy life. I've um, had the opportunity to camp, to swim, uh, to hunt through some places in Australia that a lot of people don't ever get to see. I've enjoyed and I seek out some of the most remote, um, dangerous landscapes that we have to offer, and I've enjoyed it. I can catch snakes. I can... I can get bitten most there. I can catch snakes. I can brush away spiders. Um, I've got a fairly scruffy Australian manly beard. But i tell you something I can't do. I'm not having ever a mullet. I don't care. It's an absolute... No, sorry, I shouldn't say that, just in case there's someone here. Um, Now, I'll tell you what I can't do. I can't watch zombie movies. And it's for no theological reason. I'm not being pious about the sort of movies that I watch or don't watch. I'll tell you the reason why I can't watch them. They absolutely scare the daylights out of me. I hate them. They terrify me. I will not watch them. I do not want to watch them. In fact, the idea of the living dead has no appeal to me at all. Unless, unless it's the Son of God that makes them. The verse in John chapter 5, verse 25, that I love, where Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Not long after Jesus actually spoke those words, there was a day of unnatural darkness. The priests who were in the temple ran away in terror as the curtain tore with a sort of liberating roar that I think everyone would have heard around it. 
And then out of that darkness, if you'd lived in Jerusalem on that day, out of that really unnatural darkness of the earth, out of that gloom, walked into the city those who still had families who were grieving for them. Have you ever read that or was just skipped past it in the story where in the Gospels it records the resurrection and then the, and the death of Jesus. The dead heard the voice of Jesus at the cross saying, it is finished. And the dead jumped to their feet. I think they came back into the city dancing, to be true. Laughing. The grave had no more hold on them. Death had been defeated. And it wasn't just a one-off experience, you know that? It wasn't just that special day when Jesus died on a cross and the dead rose up out of their tombs and walked back into Jerusalem. It wasn't just that day. For the countless generations that followed, the dead are still springing up out of the grave. Jesus' voice still rings out. And it goes across our crumbling tombstones and monuments that we erect. It penetrates decaying hearts. It breathes life into decrepit lungs. And we are born again. Right? I know this is true because... I'm a part of the only zombie apocalypse story that I ever want to be a part of. If you know Jesus this morning, you are alive when you were dead. Did you know that? We're looking at a room filled with, in the best case of the word, zombies. We're looking at a room full of people who are living again. A new kingdom where the once dead find life. There's a lot of people in this room who've experienced that. There might be a few people who are yet to know it. So I want to talk about three realities that orbit around the resurrection. Three realities that pivot, that, that center on this one amazing, glorious reality, the resurrection. You see, the resurrected dead have fascinated humanity ever since death first became a part of our reality. I think it's why zombie movies have made this sort of Resurrection. I didn't write that. This came to me then. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, but look, I think it's why there's such a fascination in one sense with the longevity of zombie movies. Like the sense of the dead coming alive again fascinates humanity. 
And I think it's because even if today you deny, if you're here today, you're listening today, if you deny the very nature and existence of God, there is something about death that we know deep within us that just isn't right. There's something about death that just isn't right. Death, it doesn't matter how much we try and tell ourselves otherwise, death isn't natural. It's not the way that God wanted it to be, designed it to be, and created it to be. It's not the way things are meant to be. And we hear people say that when they're grieving, don't we? Just holding their head in in such incredible devastation and just going, this is not the way it's meant to be. And they speak the truth. Those of you who know Jesus well, you know it. You know it at even a a greater and more profound level. Even to the point that while we might stand beside a grave grieving a loved one, our tears flow tinged with the joy of heaven, don't they? Death is defeated. It is. The grave... Paul says, has had its sting wrenched free. And we know that death is really now just an open doorway. The story of hope in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace towards sinners, that story doesn't end with the full stop of death. Death remains, yes, undoubtedly, death remains. People within our church, even this week, grieving. But death doesn't have the final word. The story of the gospel, it culminates in the cross, but its fullest expression, its fullest expression of joy happens beside an empty tomb, doesn't it? The full stop of the gospel is the resurrection. And so I think as we launch back into our series that we've been ticking away on for the whole year now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that was struggling with a sense of gospel identity. Who are we in Jesus? And he's dealt with all sorts of some pretty, pretty hard stuff, hasn't he? It's been some really challenging things that Paul's had to deal with in this church. And the the Holy Spirit's had to deal with them in different ways in our church, in our lives. But as Paul sort of comes into the home stretch of his letter, he starts to turn his attention to this topic, the resurrection. So here are the three things that I think orbit around the resurrection that Paul deals with that I think would be good for us to give some attention to this morning. The first one's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting from verse 12 is where we're up to it, and we're just going to read down to verse 19. I think I've got it on a screen, but I really hope that you've got your Bible in front of you and you can just follow along with it. If you're reading from a phone or an iPad, just remember to turn the airplane mode or something on so you're not getting distracted by other notifications Let's, um, let's read what God has to say this morning. 
1 Corinthians 15, reading from verse 12. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. This first part, this first little section, I, I would title it to say that the resurrection is essential to experiencing the gospel. All right? The resurrection is essential to experiencing the gospel. I think the big issue that Paul addresses here is it seems that some influential type of belief or some sort of influential type of teaching had arisen in the church in Corinth. And basically the sum of it was, there's no such thing as the resurrection. You see that in verse, nine, uh, verse 12? It says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems that some, some thought had taken root in, in the life of the church where people were walking around just going, Look, I, I, don't think, I don't think resurrection's real. It's not, it's not true. And so Paul hears about this and he wants to reorient their thinking and help them see. And so there's a, a series of sort of logical statements that all sort of connect with each other on the way through. And, we, and we'll just touch on them a little bit in a moment, but it seems that people simply did not believe that it was possible for dead people to come to life again. Maybe, maybe that's just an issue in Corinth. Maybe you might think that that isn't a problem here, right? Raymond Terrace Community Church. It's not in our statement of belief. Go on our website. You know, we, don't, we don't say, oh, there's no such thing as resurrection. So you, you can rest assured, we believe that. Maybe, maybe we're better than the Corinthians in this regard. All right, we celebrate Easter Sunday, remember, after all? Easter Sunday, the resurrection. But even if it's true, I think it's important that we hear Paul out here. Even if we're all sort of like, no, no, we believe in the resurrection, we can skip this bit. I think it's important that we hear Paul out here. That there may be more riding on the resurrection than you really believe or really know. 
However, I suspect that maybe we don't believe in the resurrection as much as we profess to. Because while ever we cling to this life and everything that this life offers us, while ever we think that what we have in the here and now is the most important thing, while ever we live today as though the, the eternity of tomorrow is just theoretical, in essence, we deny the resurrection. We say it's, it's of little consequence, even if it is true. But Paul has other ideas. Let's just follow his logic for a moment. Verse 13, uh, verse 13 it says, If there is no resurrection of the dead... All right, so let's just say there isn't a resurrection, and there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, or maybe we think, look, it could be, but it's not really that important. If there is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says, then not even Christ has been raised. If it applies to us, it applies to him. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, let's just follow his logic, if the resurrection isn't true, then even Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, well, then our proclamation is in vain. And he says, and so is your faith. We can live a pious life. We can live a religious life. We can live a faith life. We can be spiritual people. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if resurrection isn't true, then just stop the game. He says, it's, it's all in vain. It means nothing. It's worthless. That's how important the resurrection is to our faith. He goes on, verse 15, moreover, he says, we've found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Jesus from the dead. Paul basically says, hey, if resurrection is true, then what's the bother with all the preaching even? Why do this? Why gather? Why preach? Why sing if Jesus is still dead and in the grave? Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. It wasn't just the cross that dealt with sin. It was death being crushed. It was the stone being rolled away. It was the empty tomb. Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then guess what? Our sins are still a big problem. Even those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's terminology that Paul often uses. He understands what death is. Death's not a full stop for Paul. It's just a nap. It's just that they've fallen asleep in Christ. They're just sleeping for a moment. But, but he says, even those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, well, they've really perished. They're not just sleeping, they've perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, if Jesus matters just for you now, if Jesus is some sort of um, spiritual pokey machine, Right? Put in the right amount of currency, pull the lever, and Jesus will give you the stuff that you want now. 
If that's all it is, then he says, then we are pitied more than anyone because there is so much more than this life. So much more. The resurrection is essential for our faith, for our hope in the gospel. Without it, we're perished. Without it, we're pitiable. Without it, we are what the world thinks we are, a joke. But Jesus did rise from the dead, right? He is alive. The resurrection is true. And so, number one, we must hold on to the fact that the resurrection, firstly, of Jesus himself, is so essential to our faith. Second thing that I think, second truth that Paul wants to bring out that pivots around this idea of resurrection, it's this, our our resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection now, but our resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. Let's read together from verse 20. Have a look at your Bible again. Paul says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ then the Son Himself will also be subject to the One who subjected everything to Him, so that God may be all in all. I want you just to notice a couple of things about this little passage. Paul wants to set the record straight in verse 20. He's just been talking about, hey, remember, if if Christ did not rise from the dead, then what are we doing? So he gets to verse 20 and he just goes, but hey, listen, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been the first fruits, the first ones of those who have fallen asleep to know what it means to spring up out of the grave again, to stand in the newness of life of eternity. Jesus has gone before us in that way. So Paul says, yeah, that's happened. It's happened, right? And now, since that happened, let's get a couple of things straight. And here we get this beautiful little snapshot of the the issue and the solution that we have as humanity. Verse 21, Paul says, listen, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. 
And what he's referring to is, is, is wrapping up what's called a huge redemptive biblical theology that wraps from Genesis all the way through the whole Bible, and he does it in one sentence. He says, we've got a problem, people. Death was not how this world was made. Death was something foreign, but death came to us through a man, and he's referring to the story of man's rebellion in the garden. Adam and Eve created in perfect union with their, with their creator, their father, to enjoy walking in the garden. Who wouldn't have loved that, right? Wandering through this garden, absolute perfection. I love creation, that's fantastic. The highlight of the day, the cool of the afternoon when God enters the garden, walks with Adam in communion and with Eve. How incredible. Unbroken relationship, no shame, no sense of hiding, no sense of failure, just complete and utter intimacy and openness between their creator and the creation itself. And then it all goes crumbling. Why? Because the great enemy of God says, you can, you can be like God. You can rise to the throne. You can be in charge. And Adam and Eve bought the lie, took the fruit, and all of a sudden, nothing changes physically around them except this. When God's on the scene, they hide. Why? Because I'm naked, because I'm ashamed. What had happened? Sin entered the world. That's what happened. Rebellion against God is what happened. And hiding and shame has followed us ever since. And Paul says, listen, it stands to reason. If death entered the world through a man, then guess what? The resurrection of the dead also must come to the world through a man. And that man is Jesus. The second Adam. The better Adam. The Adam that Adam should have been. Verse 22, just as in Adam all die... Adam's curse has tainted us all through every generation, through every culture, through every place, through every people, through every gender, through every age. This curse of sin has absolutely wreaked havoc. And just as in Adam, all die in Christ, in Christ, all live, right? All will live. Our resurrection, our new life, our hope beyond this world, beyond this experience, beyond the 50, 60, 70, 80 years or whatever the Lord might give, the hope that we have rests in the fact that we have one who went before us and brought life. The resurrection of Jesus is essential to our faith. And our resurrection depends on Christ's resurrection. Easter Sunday is one Sunday that we really highlight it. But every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Monday is Resurrection Day. Every Tuesday is the day that Jesus lives. 
Every Wednesday the day that we can meet each other and say, he lives, right? On Thursday, we get together and we say, man, I'm glad that we live and serve a living saviour. On Friday, we get together and we say, I have a redeemer. I know. And he stands forever in the throne of heaven for me. On Saturday, I stand here and I look forward to Sunday and I say, yeah, I know that there's problems in this world, but Jesus has overcome the world. Why? Because he's overcome the grave. He lives. Every day, every day, our resurrected life depends on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the one who went before us. That's the second thing that Paul wants to talk about. Our resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. All right, here's the third thing, the final thing that we're going to say orbits around the topic of resurrection, and it's this. Our future resurrection, our future resurrection ensures a present boldness. All right? Our future resurrection ensures a present boldness. So let's just read it and then we'll unpack what he's talking about. Verse 29. And there's a tricky verse in here. We're going to just try and touch on it shortly. Verse 29. Otherwise, Paul says, otherwise, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, our, our resurrection being dependent on Jesus' resurrection. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? We'll come back to that. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. We'll finish there. Verse 29 poses a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a challenge for us, right? Thanks, Paul. So what I want to do is just deal with that very quickly for a moment, and then we'll get on with, I think, what's a bit easier to try and deal with. And let's just think about this phrase that he, he says for a moment of baptism for the dead. Um, I want to try and figure out what Paul's logic is first, why he even raises the issue, and then we can see if we can figure out what it is that he's actually talking about. So to, the way the argument works here, if you've been following it along, he's, he's basically hitting on a whole bunch of things to try and prove his point as to why it is foolish to believe that there's no such thing as the resurrection. Remember, that's what he started with back in verse 12. There's a problem in the church at Corinth. There are people saying there's no such thing as the resurrection. And then from verse 12 onwards, he's been basically proving and arguing against that point. He's like, no, that's foolish. Don't believe that garbage. Here's all the reasons why the resurrection is so important to us. And this is just another argument. Um, basically, he's saying if there's no such thing as the resurrection, why do people get baptised for the dead then, right? And then he goes on like he hasn't already dropped a bombshell on us with a whole bunch of other reasons. 
So we'll get to what he's trying to prove in a minute, but let's just try and clear a, a couple of things up with this whole baptism for the dead problem. Firstly, no one seems to have any idea about what Paul's talking about here. You can read commentary after commentary. Um, you can try to go to some of the smartest and most profound thinking Christians and to what they think about this statement and they'll have lots of words. I read lots of words in the last two weeks about this and let me sum them all up to you. I don't know. <laughs> basically, they can say it in lots of fancy ways but they all just basically go, oh yeah, pfft. I don't know what Paul's talking about here. Um, it's really difficult to talk about with any certainty what Paul is actually referencing here. It just simply isn't present anywhere else in the Bible to really get a clear idea about what this idea of the baptism of the dead is. And secondly, Paul doesn't actually approve it or disapprove it, as in the practice of getting baptised for the dead. He just simply quotes the practice as occurring. And the fact that people are doing it is the the logic behind what he's trying to get across. He says, why would they bother even doing that if the resurrection wasn't even real? That's his logic, right? He doesn't say it's good that they do that. He doesn't say it's bad that they do that. He just says they're doing it. Why bother? Why bother doing it if the resurrection isn't real? That's his point. So, although we might not know what Paul does mean by baptism of the dead, we can be very clear as to what he doesn't mean. And that's helpful. Namely, I think if we went through all of even just Paul's other writings in the New Testament, it cannot mean, it cannot mean that a living Christian can be baptised on behalf of a dead non-Christian and somehow change that dead person's status from non-Christian to Christian. All right, it can't mean that. It denies everything else that Paul would talk about as being essential in the gospel. So, so we know that it's not, oh gee, I've got an uncle who didn't know Jesus and he died. So I'm going to organise a baptismal service and I'm going to get baptised on behalf of him and then somehow he's now, now in Christ because of that. All right, that, that's not, that, that would deny the rest of the New Testament. There are a lot of theories as to what this phrase is referring to, but for what it's worth, here's the one that I think is the most plausible. It's possible, it's possible that in Corinth or in the New Testament, there were a very small number of Christians who were being baptised on behalf of other believers, other Christians, probably friends or families who maybe had died before having the opportunity to be baptised. So they'd come to know, to, to know Christ, they'd come to faith in Christ, but somehow between that moment of decision and actually going through baptism, they died. And it seems that maybe there were some other Christians who were saying, well, you know what, they didn't ever get the chance to be baptised because they died, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get baptised for them. You know, on, on their behalf. I think that's maybe what it was happening. Um, Paul doesn't really say that that's great. He doesn't commend it. He doesn't condemn it either. He doesn't say that people shouldn't do that. His point is that an act, that action is meaningless to God 
if there's no such thing as the resurrection anyway? Why bother? That's his point, all right? So, despite the uncertainty, I think, of what Paul really means by baptism of the dead, I think really his overall point couldn't be any clearer. Basically, he goes on to say that our gospel-guaranteed physical resurrection is the fuel for a life lived with boldness now. Right? That's his point. You can see it there. He talks about it. Um, listen, he says, look, we can face beasts. We, 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 can, we can face hardships. He says, I face death every day. Right? Why? His point is, why would we do that if I didn't have a hope beyond this life? As a Christian today, you can face whatever circumstances are in front of you, whether that's opposition or persecution, sickness, it doesn't matter what it is that you're facing right now. As a Christian today, you stand with a sort of bold reality of right now, based on the fact that you know there's something better coming. This isn't the only thing that is. And Paul quotes probably a poet for his day in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let's just have a party, right? Let this life be a party. Let's basically, let's eat and drink. Why? Well, tomorrow's we're dead. Basically, live for today. Gee, that sounds pretty common, doesn't it? A lot of people, oh, just live for today. No. Live today for tomorrow. That's what he's saying. Live today in the light of tomorrow because there's something better coming. All right, let's just finish up. There are three commands that he finishes with. Do not be deceived, come to your senses and stop sinning. That's how he finishes up. He's pretty Paul, you know, he likes to just get to the point. He basically says, hey, listen, the resurrection does exist. It is essential to your faith. Your resurrection is essential and dependent on Jesus' resurrection. And in fact, if the resurrection didn't exist, just give up now. That's his logic. Pretty, pretty encouraging. Thanks, Paul. But what he wants to leave us with is a sense of saying, listen, don't be deceived. You'll hear all sorts of stories in this world. All sorts of theories about this life, the life to come. And Paul says, just watch that you're not deceived. Watch that you're not deceived. Be careful who you're giving airtime to in your head. All right? Curate. If, you, if you're a social media user, then think very carefully about the people that you allow on your screen. Your feed. It's funny that they talk about feeds, don't they? That's your diet. That's what you're feeding your brain, your thinking, your heart. It's a diet. You're eating that stuff up all day long. So what are you eating? Who are you giving airtime to? Do not be deceived, he says. Secondly, come to your senses. Think clearly about your future. Think clearly about your future. And if you are living your life like there is no future resurrection, like this world is all there is, then Paul says you're living in denial of the gospel and Paul calls that sin. And he has one simple command. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop living in denial of the hope of the resurrection in your life. There is a future. There is a hope. Jesus is alive. He does reign. He is coming again. And you and I will spend eternity with him if we found in Christ today. All right? That's 
Paul's hope. So don't be deceived. Come to your senses. Stop sinning. It all hinges on the new life that Christ gives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning in our worship, in our prayer. Again, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing immense hardship with health right now. And Lord, we know and we hold on to the hope that we have for tomorrow. The hope that we have in, the, in a resurrected life, the hope that we have in a resurrected saviour. And yet, and yet, we want to live this bold life right now in light of the resurrection tomorrow. And so for our friends again who are suffering and struggling with sickness, we ask, Lord, by this resurrected power of Jesus, will they find this life even anew today? And yet, Lord, there might be people in this room or hearing this message right now. It's not a sickness of the flesh that is their greatest concern, but right now there might be a sickness of the soul, a heart that is distant and far and cold to you, Jesus. They've not experienced resurrected life. They've not placed their faith in a resurrected Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, will you take the scales from their eyes and give them eyes to see Jesus, the one who is alive and conquers May they experience and know the love of a living Saviour today. And that they too with us would join in saying, O death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? As we look to the day where we find fullness of life, resurrected life face to face with you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.